Good evening again, everyone. Uh, my name is Bob Doppelt. I uh, am an old friend of James. In fact, I met him probably 28 years ago at a uh, uh, workshop at, uh, in Oregon and known each other ever since, although I haven't seen him in many years. So when he goes to Spirit Rock, I come here and take his place, and we still don't get a chance to see each other. <laughs> but um, uh, but James asked me to come down th- this evening um, to share with you some uh, work I've done uh, and been working on the last couple of years uh, that provides a framework um, to uh, for how to guide the changes in thinking and behavior we are all going to need in order to address the profound challenges that face us today uh, as as humans. Um, I, before I get going, uh, and I want to describe this framework to you, I really want to thank James for inviting me and for Gerda and Nancy for their help here. Um, appreciate it. Uh, and uh, thank you all for the, uh, the Berkeley Insight Meditation community. It's a wonderful community, and this is a fabulous facility. Um, in Eugene, Oregon, where I'm from, uh, we have a very small sangha, uh, and not a facility like this. We have people's homes that we meet in, so uh, this is quite special. Uh, and I want to also apologize. I actually have been here for about three days running workshops with different organizations. I brought 100 books with me, but I have one left, <laughs> this one. So at the end of the day, if somebody would like this one, you can take it. But I do have a sheet that we've handed around, and I, again, I didn't, uh, don't think I made enough, but uh, you can use those because we'll We'll focus in on those um, uh, in a little exercise I'd like to do uh, in a few moments. Um, but uh, one of the things that's, that's clear now is we have uh, some really serious challenges. We might even see another one coming tomorrow uh, on the East Coast with the great uh, snowstorm you're hearing about, uh, which is uh, sort of a follow-up to Hurricane Sandy. We'll see if it actually plays out that way. Um, we... Uh, are in a position now uh, globally where global temperatures are pretty much set to rise by at least 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which is very, very serious. Um, what we're seeing now with these events will continue and accelerate. My background is I'm actually trained as an environmental scientist and as a counseling psychologist, and I've tried to combine those two fields uh, throughout my career. I teach at the University of Oregon, um, uh, but I've also practiced socially engaged Buddhism for about 30 years and have tried to merge all three of those fields. Uh, And there's nothing that's more clear to me now is that the, the Dharma and finding ways to live the Dharma and help others live the Dharma is going to be more important than ever before as we enter this very chaotic period in human history. Uh, that we're entering, and to try to come out the other end in a much better state. Um, So that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to start first by asking you a few questions. How many of you think you understand why you do what you do? How many of you think you understand what drives your own behavior? All right, you know, so how many of you think you know more than 50% of what, you know? <laughs> um, all right, that, that's a pretty standard remark. I, actually, today I talked to the city of San Francisco, their sustainability staff, and they all said, oh, yeah, we, we know, you know. But there's a couple other questions I want to ask, which always sort of tricks things. So how many of you think you know how to change your behavior anytime you want to? You want to lose weight, you can lose weight. If you want to get more exercise, you can get exercise, etc. Anybody? A few? Okay. And how many of you think of yourselves as change agents? Your job is to motivate other people to change their thinking and behavior about something. Okay, a few more. Okay. That's, all, that's also what happened at the city of San Francisco. Everybody raised their hands at the last question, right? And yet I said, well, isn't there something incongruous here? If you think of yourself as someone trying to motivate others to change, but we're not sure how we change our own behavior or what even drives our own behavior. Um, So it's real helpful to to try to understand that dynamic. Um, And of course, 
Uh, Buddhism is a way to understand that, and, and it provides a framework. Uh, and I want to, uh, uh, to try to uh, provide a framework for you to think about. Uh, there are numerous uh, Dharma guides to help you understand the Dharma uh, in terms of understanding yourself. Uh, but I, have, I did not see any uh, Dharma guides, if you will, written in mainstream language uh, for the general public, especially focused on environmental and social economic issues. And so that's what I wrote my new book, the, the one that's left, uh, From Me to We. And it is really a Dharma talk, if you will, uh, a book about the Dharma uh, written uh, in, lay, in layman's language or the mainstream language um, for people interested in uh, environmental issues and socioeconomic issues. Um, so uh, that's what I want to share with you today. Um, I'm going to start by suggesting that um, the challenge we have in front of us today is to make a shift from what I call a me-focused culture and me-focused uh, thinking, uh, which means that we believe self-centeredness and doing um, trying to get whatever we want just for ourselves, whenever we want it, is good and natural. That tends to be what our cultural mo- not, uh, narrative is. And we need to make a shift from that to what I call a we-based cultural narrative, a we-based uh, thinking about ourselves, which really means that we meet our needs by caring for other people and the ecological systems that created them and sustain them, and that created us and sustains us also. So at the heart of the issues we're facing from climate change to growing economic inequality to uh, economic troubles is really um, a fundamental shift from me to we. Um, and uh, I'm going to suggest that that shift from me to we, in, in uh, mainstream language I call it the shift to sustainable thinking and behavior, uh, require, is, it really involves an interconnected set of five commitments. Um, and the Buddha talked about these commitments in different language, in different terms, but he definitely talked about these uh, commitments as well as many other spiritual leaders throughout history have talked about these commitments. And the physical and social scientists today talk about these commitments, um, but not in the framework that has helped us sort of figure out how to apply them or think about how to apply them in our lives, in the organizations you work with, in our families, uh, and in society as a whole. So I hope that that's what I'm going to offer. And these commitments are really profoundly important, I think, because they are based on what I call natural laws or the natural laws of sustainability. And these are universal truths about how we humans must interact with each other today and with the natural environment if we're going to make it through this very difficult, challenging time ahead uh, and come out the other end in a much more stable and healthy condition. Uh, And these natural laws are basically the laws of the Dharma. Uh, I spent many years trying to to, uh, investigate and and frame uh, ways for people to think about these issues and uh, framework to do that. I realized after many years of investigation that the Buddha has already told us about it. They're right there. And many social scientists and physical scientists are trying to describe what the Buddha said and what the Dharma says up to 2,000 years ago or longer. Uh, so really, uh, these natural laws that I'm going to talk about are Dharma principles, basic Dharma principles. And in fact, uh, the Buddha said that many times that the Dharma can be understood by observing the laws of nature. So in fact... Uh, the Dharma is really just laws of nature, uh, and that's what I want to share with you. I also want to emphasize commitments, that these are commitments we need to make, um, uh, because a commitment is a vow that we make to ourselves, uh, of a, a, a pledge uh, to, to follow a sense of purpose and, and, and direction in our lives, to set these, this way of thinking, this way of behavior as a priority. Um, and uh, the more explicit a commitment we can make, uh, the more you can turn your thinking and your action into an explicit choice. 
And that's really what we're going to have to do as we navigate our way through this very challenging time ahead. We're going to have to make very explicit choices about doing certain things and not doing other things. Because um, doing certain things can lead us to a path of freedom, to a path where we address issues like climate change. And doing other things are going to lead us in a very different direction, and it's often going to be confusing as to which is which. Um, and we're going to have to really make some tough choices. And we expand our choices by altering our interpretation of the world, by altering how we see things, which requires increased mindfulness, which is why the Dharma is so important and why meditation is so important. The more awareness we can develop, the more mindfulness, the bigger our choices will be, the more we will understand those choices. Um, And... This is really important because climate change and growing economic inequities and other problems that we're facing today are really not technical problems. They're not policy problems. The climate change is not an energy problem. It's really not a fossil fuel problem. It's a crisis of human thought and imagination. Uh, Said differently, I, I see global climate change, which is, again, what I spend most of my time on now, as the greatest crisis of thought in human history. Imagine that a species, us, have fouled our nest so badly that the future of human civilization is now being challenged. If temperatures rise beyond 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and we're going to go up no matter what we do now and bump up against that level, if we shoot beyond that, uh, it's, it challenges the very basis of, of, of our societies. Uh, so we have a big challenge ahead of us to prevent it from going beyond 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and then bring it back down over time. Uh, and that's going to require an entirely different way of thinking. The good news is societies in the past have fundamentally changed their thinking a number of times. And every time they did so, they, almost everyone ended up much better off. And I think once we make this shift, this shift from what I call me to we, um, or to sustainable thinking and action, I think we're all going to end up much better off. But in the midst of it, it seems impossible to make the shift, as it has with every previous shift in history. Uh, and only afterwards, people look back and go, well, this is natural now, what we're doing. This, of course, is the way it would have been. How, why was it such a problem back then? But in, when you're in the midst of it, it's pretty difficult. Um, so I'm going to suggest that the uh, five commitments are a mainstream approach to cultivating the bodhisattva way of life. Uh, and that's really what I'm going to describe here. Um, and the, the bodhisattva way of life flows naturally from cultivating the awakened mind, from growing our awareness becoming more aware of what, what we are, who we are, and what the best way is to live uh, in order to, to find happiness, to be, to, to be at peace. Um, and again, I think this way of life leads to a natural shift away from a me-focused uh, perspective to a we-focused perspective. Um, so I want to just start, if you would... Um, and I'll take questions after we're done, but let's just spend a second, if you would, just close your eyes again and just take a couple of deep breaths, if you will. Center yourself. Let your tensions go and any sense of having to be anywhere or do anything. And become aware of your breathing just for a moment. Notice the breath as it enters and leaves your body, letting go of thoughts as they come. And focusing on the breath is a way to concentrate our minds, as we know. But it turns out it's also much more than that. I invite you to bring your attention to what's actually happening when you breathe. And that is, you are inhaling oxygen and you are exhaling CO2, carbon dioxide. And as you 
become aware that you're inhaling oxygen and exhaling CO2, think about what that oxygen is doing for you. It turns out that the food you eat, the liquids you drink, are not really the primary source of energy in your body. It is oxygen. Oxygen metabolizes those uh, substances and turns them into energy. And oxygen also is what detoxifies your bloodstream. Oxygen is the key to life. And of course, if you aren't sure about that, all you'd have to do is stop breathing for a few minutes. Now, I want you to actually do some conscious awareness here and try to imagine where the oxygen is coming from as you breathe in. Do you know where it was produced? Do you know where it's coming from? Most of us are unaware that about three-quarters of the oxygen we breathe is actually created through photosynthesis in single-cell green algae in marine environments, in the oceans and estuaries around us. And the other 25% roughly comes from the same process in vegetation all around you. So complex interactions occurring all around the world and all around the globe are producing the oxygen that are giving you life right now. And try to just become aware of that process coming into you and out of you. Can you imagine, can you see that oxygen coming in and out? Can you see the connections with all the other processes going on that are creating the processes that give you life? When you take a breath, do you give thanks to the oxygen that just gave you life? Do you give thanks to the oceans for creating the oxygen that give you life? Most of us don't, of course. We're not aware of that. But here is a fundamental truth. Nothing exists on its own on the planet. Everything here on Earth, including you and I, is created by and sustained by something else. And this is in what mainstream language I call the natural law of interdependence, which is the first and most important natural law of sustainability. And in Buddhism, we call this emptiness or dependent origination. Nothing is a solid entity in itself. All things are dependent upon multiple causes and conditions. Now, if you uh, are willing, I'd like to sort of ask you to see the world afresh in your mind. Instead of seeing yourself as just a separate entity, just see the, the oxygen and other processes coming in through your body and exiting your body. Try to imagine yourself as you really are, which is just a medium through which processes and substances move throughout the planet. Can you envision the continual flow of energy and materials, even the microscopic bacteria in your body as it comes in and it flows out? If you can envision this continual circulation of flows in and out, what you're actually seeing are the causes and conditions that make things the way they are here on Earth and that gives you life. So just feel those elements and those processes for a second. Now, if you would, come back to your body and your own breathing and become aware of 
your surroundings. The Buddha said that we can give ourselves no greater gift than and no more money, no, no jewels or anything else than cultivating mindfulness. So there is no greater gift than that. So thank yourself for giving yourself a little bit of mindfulness here and uh, go ahead and come back to the room. So as we just experienced, the boundaries we create in our minds to distinguish ourselves from other people, ourselves from the so-called natural environment, our family from other families, our organization from other organizations, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the environment from the economy, those really aren't real. Those are imag- imaginary boundaries we create in our minds, humans do it naturally, uh, is a way to try to break the world down into smaller pieces and understand it better. And that's okay. That's a natural process. That's that's fine to do. It helps us make sense of the world, but we cannot get caught in that illusion because it's only an illusion. There really are no separations there. Uh, We are just all part of the same process. Um, and this is, leads to the first and most important commitment of the shift from me to we, uh, as I talk about the shift to sustainable thinking and action, which is to see the systems you're part of. Always try to understand the ecological, the social, and the economic systems that you're actually just embedded within. Uh, and the more we can expand our awareness of the systems we're part of, the more aware we're going to become. Uh, and there are tools to do that. Meditation helps on a personal level. I work a lot with different organizations like city governments and uh, large corporations, and I have them actually do systems mapping, where you actually put yourself in the middle of a piece of paper and you map out all the ecological, all the social, all the economic systems that you influence and that influence you. And you can do that yourselves in your own organizations, in your own family or your own life. Um, see the systems you're part of. Basic Buddhist principle in mainstream language. Okay? Unfortunately, as we talked about, most people don't think that way in our society. We're taught, in fact, my university has a number of programs that teach people quite the opposite, right? Uh, We're taught that we are freestanding entities, um, and this was exacerbated and... uh, uh, and really uh, emphasized 350 years ago, if you will, uh, when, especially in Europe, people were responding to the uh, tremendous control over the economy and thought and religion by, in the feudal age, by feudal kings and queens and landlords, etc. And there was a reaction at that point in time by Tom Locke, Thomas Locke and uh, uh, other members uh, uh, John Locke, Adam Smith eventually, et cetera, they said, oh, no, no, we're all freestanding independent entities. We can think on our own, we can be on our own, et cetera. Uh, and that really kicked off a process that's led in our society here to a, what I call a status of extreme individualism. From a psychological perspective, we call it narcissism almost, uh, where we're just really focused only on ourselves. Whatever we can get for ourselves is most important. That's the me era. Uh, and that's what's led to climate change. That's what's led to many of these issues, the, the, that kind of thinking that we don't keep in mind um, the, uh, uh, the systems we're part of. Uh, in fact, in economics in our society, we're told, go out and pursue your own self-interest and without any concerns really about what the consequences are. And if everybody does that, we're all going to end up better off somehow magically. We have whole economic departments that teach that, right? And just a little self-reflection uh, and observation can show us that that's patently wrong. In fact, very harmful. From the fact that we here in the U.S. and our predecessors, as well as people in other Western nations, have pursued our own economic self-interest by burning fossil fuels and didn't take into account the climate system that we've now put in jeopardy, to the financial industry in 2008 that was pursuing its own self-interest without thinking about the broader 
economic systems it was enmeshed within and crashed the whole world economy to your own personal experience, I'm sure you've had, where you're self-centered in your family and get a pretty good pushback from family members, we know that that really doesn't work very well. Um, yet that's, that's the mantra, that's the cultural narrative we live in for the most part. Not necessarily in this room with, you, with, with folks that are thinking about these issues, but it is. Um, uh, we have confused self-centeredness with individual freedom. And because of that, we're all much less free. Uh, and I think we really have to, to think about that. Um, and this leads to the second natural law of sustainability, the law of cause and effect. Everything that you're dealing with today and we're all dealing with are the results of decisions and activities that have taken place before us. And everything that future generations are going to deal with are going to be the result of what we do now, right? That's just how it is. That's just the way the world is. Um, and in today's overcrowded, overconsumed, overheating, and very interconnected world, economically connected, communication-wise connected, uh, uh, everything we do now will create the causes and conditions for the future, whether we're going to solve some of these problems or not. Uh, of course, in Buddhism, this is called karma right? Um, uh, it's basic Buddhism, basic Dharma principle, but it's uh, not a principle that most people understand. Uh, and uh, what's very important is to understand that what we do matters. Uh, your actions have consequences. Uh, everything creates its own, is created by causes and conditions and affects causes and conditions in the future. Um, and the only level of reality that really doesn't is nirvana, or nirvana as we call it, where there's not these causes and conditions that create things. So um, it's important to continue to go deeper and deeper, deeper into our awareness on these issues. Um, you must understand that every word we speak, every action we take, every technology we develop, every policy we adopt has an effect now on someone at some point in time, and often ricochets around the world in many ways. Um, uh, and so the law of cause and effect is, is ubiquitous now. Uh, and it matters more today than ever before. Uh, and this leads to the second commitment that I'm talking about, and that is take responsibility for all of the consequences of your actions. The Buddha talked about that thousands of years ago. We need to become more aware, if we can, of what the consequences of our actions can be. Mindfulness helps a lot, but we've now developed some tools to do that. If you haven't used something called fishbone diagrams, uh, it's a good example. You put a, an action at the end of what looks like the head of a fish, and you go backwards along all the ribs of the fish, and you say, what are the likely consequences of this action over here? And suddenly you go deeper and deeper, and it becomes pretty powerful. You go, whoa, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't do it that way. You know, maybe I should take a different step. Um, so see the systems you're part of and then try to understand the consequences of your actions on those systems. Those are the, two, the first two natural laws and first two commitments. Um, and uh, this is really about right intention and right thought. Uh, it's about understanding that we have choices that we can make. Uh, and if we really want a path out of suffering, uh, we need to make conscious decisions, conscious choices to go deeper and deeper in looking at the effects of our behaviors and our activities and our actions. Uh, and the Buddha addressed this issue directly, uh, often. He said that everyone wants to be happy, but we often push on the exact wrong levers in order to pursue that happiness. We don't understand the effects of our activities. Uh, he said, we have dust in our eyes. Even when we know the right actions to do, sometimes we blind ourselves to them. Uh, and this is why we practice meditation, to try to develop increased awareness, increased mindfulness of our actions. But it's really important uh, to do, and as Buddha, the Buddha said, suffering is the key to change. 
Um, only when we actually create dis, have dissonance, a sense of dissonance, do we really get motivated to make a change. I worked as a counseling psychologist for many years, and families came to me not because things were really, really going well. They came to me because things weren't going well. That's the dissonance. That's the suffering. Uh, so I think the fact that we're facing climate change now and these big storms and other kinds of events actually could be a trigger for us, needed to motivate us to, to make some big changes, if we take some other steps. Uh, just becoming aware of that dissonance alone won't be enough. Um, uh, but, uh, but, and we'll talk about that in a second. But um, we can change our karma. We know we can by making different choices. Uh, and that's really important to keep in mind. But the first step is understand your context, understand the systems you're part of, and then begin to try to understand the consequence of your actions on those systems, okay? Now I want you to take a journey with me, if you would. I want you to imagine that a genie picks you up and sweeps you away from whatever you do every day on your job, um, whatever your life is, and makes you the most powerful decision maker on earth. Okay, At your fingertips is any information you need to make any decision. Whatever you decide is what's going to happen. Now, many people in this room would love that power uh, and or it would be good to, if you did have that power. But there's a catch, of course, for something like this. This genie is also giving you a unique form of amnesia. You can't remember what your name is who your family is, if you have a family, where you live, what your economic status is, what your religion is, what your nationality is, even if you have kids or not. You don't remember anything about yourself. All you know is whatever you decide is going to be what happens. Okay? How would you make decisions under that setting? Anyone? Suggestions? How would you make decisions under that kind of setting? For the good of all, okay, that's very good. Any other options? For, least the greatest good. For the greatest good, possibly. Would you make it on cost effectiveness? As we mostly do today? Right? No? Go ahead. Okay, so get a lot of people involved, make a group effort. Okay. What's that? You need a cabinet? Yeah, good. I think I, we, we heard it in a, in a number of different suggestions here, but I would, I would guess that you're going to adopt uh, a decision-making process that's similar to the age-old moral rule called the golden rule which is to do on to others as you would have them do on to you because those others might be you. You don't know who you are, right? Now, as far-fetched as that scenario that I just described sounds, what I described is the reality of the world we live in today. How many of you drove a car here or have a car, right? You all generated some greenhouse gas emissions that are going up into the atmosphere and affecting people who have no idea that it happened or that you did it in China and in India and other places. And vice versa, the people in China are burning greenhouse gases like mad. We don't know what's happening there, and they're affecting us. That's the world we're now in. This is very different than even 30 years ago. We have globalized environmental problems through climate change, but also ocean acidification and some others. We've globalized the economy. We've globalized our communications. And so any activity by anyone can have profound effects all over the world. They don't even know it. And the people that are affected don't know it. That is the way the world is today. 
And we have to bring our thinking up to speed on that. We can't just think only about our own little narrow uh, sphere, which is how we normally do it and what we've been taught, but we are in a very different world. And that leads to the third natural law of sustainability, as you will, the third Dharma principle, which is the law of moral justice. Okay? Um, And in Buddhist terms, this is sila, right? Moral conduct. Uh, Which is really the foundation of a peaceful life from the Buddhist perspective. Uh, We have to decide that we're going to adopt and live by some very clear moral and ethical principles uh, because we owe it to other people and because that's how we find happiness. Um, morality addresses issues about or questions about what we believe is right and wrong and fair and unfair in human behavior and human relationships. And we now know that our greenhouse gas emissions, as an example, actually cause unjustifiable human suffering and death around the world. And vice versa. Others do that here too. Um, We know that a lot of the activities we're engaged in now are really unfair uh, and unjust. And so we have to adopt a moral principle that will guide our our behavior to that and our response to that. And the most universal moral principle adopted by almost every religion around the world and actually embedded in our laws is to do no harm. That's the first step. And that's what the Buddha talks about also. Do no harm. Uh, and, uh, and that is really leads to the third commitment required of this shift from me to we uh, that is the core of sustainable thinking and acting, and that is to abide by society's most universally held moral principle do no harm. Uh, And so think about, if you understand the systems you're part of, you try to understand the consequences or the impacts of your activities on those systems, then you say, I'm going to start to do no harm. I want to try to change, become aware of what I'm doing to the extent that I can, begin to uh, modify them to try to do less harm and less harm and eventually no harm. And organizations are doing it. People are doing it. We're reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We're moving to zero waste. We're doing a lot of different things. So it's not, I'm not talking about something that's brand new. But the more you're conscious of the fact that I want to do no harm, the, the happier you'll be, the more peaceful you'll be. And, of course, the more chance we have of dealing with these other issues. Um, uh, there's a number of details among that, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, But just think about that. Do no harm. Now I want you to take another little trip with me, if you will, and see in your mind's eye the picture taken by the Apollo 17 astronauts in 1972 called the Blue Marble. It's the picture of the Earth sort of floating out there in space. It's the first time we ever had a picture of our home as a freestanding entity. Uh, that humans ever had that? Can you see that picture out there? Now look really, really carefully and see if you can identify the intake valves that are coming in from other planets that are allowing us to bring in other resources once we use up our resources or contaminate what we have uh, available. Can you see those? There aren't any, right? Now look really carefully and see if you can find the discharge pipes that allow us to send our pollution and waste and other things away somewhere else. Do you see that? Look carefully. There aren't any. Everything we do and make stays right here on our planet or in our immediate atmosphere. And we have to understand that. And I know in my... uh, University in my field, um, a number of scientists and around the globe, scientists have realized that the human impact on the earth has accumulated to the level that we are now in a new geological era. And the geological era that has been, it's been called the Anthropocene. And that is 
when human activities will determine the fate of life on earth now, not natural processes. What we do from this point forward is going to determine what organisms, what people live, where they live, how they live, not natural activity, not natural process. Of course, that'll be interface with each other. Uh, from global climate change, if we don't address that, if we don't address ocean acidification, biodiversity loss, etc., we're determining the fate of life on Earth now. So we are now trustees. Okay, and that's the fourth natural law of sustainability, the law of trusteeship. This, again, was not true 30 and 40 years ago, but it is true today. We are the trustees. What we do will determine future life on this planet. And that's a pretty daunting feeling that we have to take responsibility for that, but that is reality the earth, in fact, is, not, is a living trust that we've been given the responsibility of managing. Uh, each of us is here just for a very short period of time. And you, you, you get my age, I'm in my mid-60s now, and I look back and go, where did that go, right? Um, and uh, yet we use and, and, and practice uh, things that uh, make it feel like it doesn't matter that we're just here temporarily. Uh, and... Uh, all things change, all things die, including us. Um, so we don't really own anything. We're just temporarily responsible for things. We have that in our hands, in a, in a, in a title, for a very short period of time, and it's all temporary. And the Buddha talked about that continually, but it's really true when you think about it. When I pass away, I can't take anything I've got with me. You know, there's nothing to take. Um, and uh, uh, in Buddhist terms, this is uh, detachment, non-attachment. It's understanding that if you're a trustee, you're managing this only temporarily, and you'll pass on, so don't get attached to anything. Uh, and it's also equanimity, not having a sort of prejudice towards one factor, one person, one group, or another. It's seeing that all are equal, um, uh, and deserve equal treatment, that all organisms, all processes deserve equal treatment. Uh, and when you combine that with karuna, which is caring compassion for other people, uh, and mudita, which is taking joy in the well-being of others, we get a picture of what trusteeship really means. Uh, while the principle of moral justice and ethical conduct is about doing no harm initially, the principle of trusteeship is about doing good. It's trying to restore the systems we're part of because they are in a position where we uh, uh, really have to do that. So that leads to the fourth commitment of the shift from me to we, um, from selfishness to selflessness, if you will, um, which is at the core of sustainable thinking and acting, and that is to take, uh, to acknowledge your trustee responsibilities, and take responsibility for the continuation of all life because we're in charge now. Take responsibility for the continuation of all life. We're in charge. Um, all people, now and in the future, all over the globe, have the right to live on a healthy planet. Uh, and we have a responsibility to do what we can to make that happen. Um, we don't really have time, but there's an exercise we could do to, to help you understand that. But um, once you become committed to practicing the Dharma, you realize how important uh, trusteeship really is, that that's really at the core of what the Buddha taught. Uh, uh, and when you would commit to taking care of all life without prejudice, that is, you see it all equally, um, you find tremendous happiness, tremendous peace of mind. Um, it seems like a great burden initially, but in fact, it's a tremendous joy. My wife is a veterinarian, uh, and she goes to work often and comes home crying because she's lost 
uh, an animal that she tried so hard to, uh, to help. Uh, and the ups and downs and the emotions, and it's good that my wife actually just sort of lets them come and go, but they're incredibly intense. And what, what she finds is that actually rather than being sad, she's sad at the time, it is a very powerful, spiritual, uplifting feeling to be that committed to trying to save life, even though sometimes she doesn't. Um, so I think the more we become aware of our trusteeship responsibilities, the more hap- the happier we're going to be, the more peaceful we're going to be, the more settled we're going to be. Uh, and again, uh, uh, this is really important from a Buddhist perspective. So the law of interdependency or dependent origination, cause and effect or karma, moral justice or sila, trusteeship or non-attachment, karuna and mudita uh, are all interconnected. Okay, And I've simply put them into uh, 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 mainstream language and like all systems, they're, they're very interrelated. Uh, and trusteeship sort of connects all of them together, if you will. Um, uh, it requires compassion for all living creatures and a commitment to try to take all of it together. But there's one final law that's really important, uh, the fifth natural law, and that is the law of free will. Uh, and the Buddha talked about this extensively also, that we're free to choose what we think about and how we behave any time we want. Uh, we think it's not true. We think that we can't do what we want to do. We live in an economic system that sort of forces us to do certain things, but uh, that's really not the case. Um, that we can change our karma at any time we want by making different choices, and that requires greater awareness and mindfulness. Um, uh, and it, it's very important, again, to remember that much of the situation that we're all responding to today we're, 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 is set up by decisions that were made 30 and 40 years ago by our previous generations. Even our, even our consumer culture was actually the result of very explicit decisions made after World War II, if you haven't read some of that material. After World War II, we came out of the war with an industrial capacity that way outstripped our capacity to buy stuff. We could make a whole lot more than people could buy. And so we kept having recessions because businesses had to keep cutting back because they, they couldn't make as much. So they said, wait a second, we need to make Americans into consumers. It was a very explicit choice. Um, and every time a society's made choices like that, given the conditions of their time, they ended up better off. Since the 50s, we've created an economic more economic wealth than's ever been seen in, in human history. Now, there's some unintended consequences to that that we're now dealing with. In fact, they knew that back in the 50s when they decided to do this. People said, oh, yeah, isn't this likely to cause some problems? Yeah, we'll deal with that down the road when it happens. And that'd be now in us. <laughs> uh, but my point is, though, that societies many times have made different choices in response to the conditions that they faced and ended up better off. We do not have to just continue to go blindly into the future. And that's the fifth natural law of sustainability, the the law of free will. And the final commitment is choose your own destiny. That you are free at any time to determine your own karma. So what I'd like to do for just a few moments, I passed around those uh, uh, pieces of paper and you, you can share them. If you would, think about you, where you sit or stand, uh, so to speak, with each of those natural laws and the five commitments. And you might want to evaluate yourself, say, from one to five. Five, you're always aware of the systems you're part of. You're always trying to be conscious of the consequences of your impacts on those systems, etc. And one being never. Just try to Look at yourself for a second and then turn to a partner and share what you came up with. Okay? So just evaluate yourself, just do some little introspective and then just sort of talk with a partner just very briefly to see what what you each came up with. We'll just spend a few minutes on it. So 
So we're doing this in groups, if you want to. <laughs> or I'll just read them again. Um, see the systems you're part of. That's the first commitment. Second commitment is account for all of the consequences of your actions on those systems. The third is acknowledge your moral obligation to do no harm. The fourth is to acknowledge your trustee responsibility to do good for all life. And finally, the fifth is to uh, choose your own destiny. So spend a few moments just talking. Does anybody want to share anything that popped up to them when you had a dialogue? Go ahead. Oh, here's a... Uh... Thank you. Uh, one thing that I noticed is a common thread through all the five is... Eliminating animal products from our diet. My wife and I are vegan. She became a vegan because she loves animals. I became a vegan because of obsession just like this. I looked inside and saw the life in me was the same life that's in the animals. And I have no right to take their life. Animals have a right to be here just like we do. And live out their, their life to a natural end. And even milk and dairy products and uh, eggs, there's tremendous torture and abuse that goes on in the production of those. Thank you. It is a fact that if everyone stopped eating animal products, global warming would not be a problem. 80% of the drugs produced in the world are for animal products. And also human... Uh, I don't, human hunger would be stopped as well. So, a vote for vegan. Thank you. Any other thoughts? Go ahead. One of the things that came to me as you were talking about how easy it is to start feeling guilty about driving our cars and eating meat products, like Dennis was saying. Could you address that? I think yes. that would be important for everybody to hear. Very, very important question. Um, uh, we live in a, the structure of our society is such that it is very difficult to do no harm, let alone do good. But this is really about increased awareness and increased mindfulness at all times. Um, we're never going to be perfect. Uh, it's simply a matter of becoming more and more aware as we go and making better decisions um, as we go. So uh, I don't think it's a matter of feeling guilty. It's a matter of saying, how do I increase my awareness, increase my understanding, increase my mindfulness, and try to do better next time? And I think the more that we do that, uh, the more that we help other people do that as well, we will see, we'll reach a point of social contagion where we'll see some pretty significant changes. That's how social change usually happens. Enough people become more aware and more committed, and then suddenly it fires up and takes off and nobody usually can predict when that period is. It just happens out of the blue. You remember the Berlin Wall fell? Nobody even had a clue. You know? um, uh, and so I think that's where we're at. I think it's not a matter of beating ourselves up. We're living in a society, in, a stru- in an economy that is set up to be unsustainable. So you're going to have to buck that trend quite a bit. Uh, but the more aware you are, even if you're doing things you know aren't the right thing to do or don't want to be doing those, but you, you're sort of forced to do them temporarily, just the more aware you are of them, rather than blanking that out of your awareness, the more chance we have of creating structural change uh, through social contagion. Other thoughts? Other questions? Yeah, sometimes... Um like a few weeks ago, the Chronicle ran some articles about global warming and how awful things are and how they're getting worse and how they, we may have passed the tipping point and this and that. And um, when I wake up and read that in the morning, I just kind of feel like going back to sleep and putting the covers over my head. And, you know, it's very um, depressing. You know? And so I guess... Um, 
Well, one thing, you said early in your talk that the good news was that um, there have been times in history when people have made conscious choices to change. And uh, we talked about that in our group, and someone came up with the example of China, but that's sort of a conscious choice to become more consumerist and more, you know, wasting of damaging the environment and so on. I'm wondering if you could talk some about, uh, I guess, A, how to live with this kind of despair that can come without being uh, immobilized by it, and then also the hope that you mentioned from societies that have changed in, in the past. Well, it's a very good question. Again, thank you very much. First of all, there's three keys to any fundamental personal change, and that is an important change of thinking and behavior. Dissonance, efficacy, and benefits. Okay, What that means is, first, in order to, ha- to make a fundamental change in thinking and behavior, there has to be dissonance, a gap between where we want to be and where we are. Right? Everything seems fine, and it's very hard to motivate anybody to want to make a change, right? So dissonance is growing now with climate change, right? We've got, oh, something's wrong here, right? But if all people feel is dissonance, what are we going to do? We're going to stick our heads in the sand or ignore it or blame somebody who we think is faking it and trying to create it on our own. So you see the attacks on climate scientists and others going on around the country today because there's two other keys to change that we have not focused on enough in this country and elsewhere. Uh, the second is efficacy. People need to believe and understand that they have the skills, capacity, the know-how, the tools to do what's necessary to reduce the dissonance. And third, just as importantly, the benefits. People need to, be, to believe that the benefits of using those tools and capacities outweigh the downside by basically research shows a two-to-one ratio. We have to see two benefits for every downside. Uh, there can be a bunch of downsides, but there has to be at least two benefits. And the reason, when you think about it, is pretty straightforward. That if the benefits of a big change and the downsides are roughly equal, better to dance with the devil you know than the devil you don't. Uh, and if the downsides, of course, are way more, then you know most people aren't going to deal with it at all. Well, I think, and my, and our, my organization does a lot of research on these issues, that um, did, we have not focused on efficacy and benefits very much in this country on climate change. People don't think we can solve the problem. But we can. We have the know-how, the tools, the capacities, the technologies to dramatically reduce warming almost uh, instantaneously, if you will, from a geological perspective. Within 10 years, we can dramatically reduce it, but we're not taking those steps. Um, But we have that capacity. And if we use those tools and technologies, what we're going to find out is we're all going to end up better off. We're going to save money. We're going to create jobs. We're going to have better personal health because there's less pollution in the air. All sorts of benefits. But we haven't focused on that. And I think that's really the key. That, uh, rather than allowing ourselves to get depressed, because it can be depressed if all you do is look at the impacts of global warming, we have to also understand that what, what those, uh, those solutions are. We have them. We know them. We don't have to create stuff down the road. Um, and that there are benefits to them. So we just have to keep that in mind all the time and keep our mindfulness on that keep, and keep working on those issues. And I think we'll find that we can, again, get social contagion going. I'm very optimistic that we're going to avoid 2 degrees Celsius. Uh, we're going to come close because of the inertia in the system, but I think we won't hit it, and I think we'll go the other direction. But humans respond late to crisis like this, always, if you look at history. But when we do, we tend to really marshal our forces. And I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, in fact, you might see something out of this president. Um, uh, we've been working with him. It's another story, and time's up here. But we're working with the White House on a pretty major initiative that they're, they haven't decided exactly whether they're going to do it or not. We might hear something about it next Tuesday, State of the Union. Um, we'll see. Uh, they're, they're weighing their bets trying to figure out whether... They really want to do it, but I, I, I think we might make some progress. Maybe one more question, and I'm, I'm happy to stay around afterwards, too. Like what um, the three most important things that we can do right now that you think that we can do, the three most important things right, right away? The most important step you can take on it from a climate change perspective yes. is not a technological change. It's, not, it's your own mindfulness. 
just become aware of your, this, how you're connected to these systems and what you're doing, etc. Draw some systems maps at home if you really want to use technical stuff, you know, or help you, do you work in an organization or work with people? Help them sort of begin to do that uh, also. And then there are some simple steps you can take. It does help to, to uh, reduce your energy use dramatically if you can. And there's usually no change in lifestyle with a big change in energy. My wife and I bought uh, a, a property outside of Eugene, Oregon, uh, a junker home. We pro- ultimately, we should have probably bulldozed it. Um, it was so bad. I mean, the wind blew through it, and it was just really nonsense. And we were spending, when we moved in, $1,200 a month in energy cost for heating and cooling, and we were just stunned. Uh, and so um, we, we uh, put all sorts of new windows in. We insulated, et cetera. We turned off all the lights. We unplugged all the, the things that were plugged in that we never use. And we found that half of the lights and computers and everything, that we, you know, we use them once a week, so we unplugged. We've cut our energy costs to about 200 sometimes $50 a month. Okay? Then we put in a solar system and a solar hot water system and we actually make money by selling power to the grid. Okay, uh, this, We're not anything special. I had a commitment to it. I was aware of it. But anybody can do that. We, we happen to have good solar access, so you can have that. Um, but the point is, you know, with, with this a, a, a sort of a modest investment, we cut our energy use by about 75 to 80% with no change in lifestyle. I had some rough knees after a while after getting up in the attic and putting down uh, insulation, etc. So we can make these changes. Just look around town at night at all of the lights that are on all night. If we turn those off, that's a big, huge chunk of energy that we don't need with no change in lifestyle, right? So, I mean, there are going to be lifestyle changes we want to make and will make, but for the most part, I think we can go a long way just by being conscious of what we're doing. With that, I think, why don't we end with a, a meditation on meta, if you would. So if you would, just begin by sitting comfortably and close your eyes and Sit with your back erect without being over strained or over arched and take a few deep breaths. And feel the life giving oxygen flowing in and out of your body again. Then say to yourself, may I live safely. May I live in peace. May I be happy. May I be healthy, and may I live with ease. And repeat those phrases to yourself a few times more, and when your mind wanders, bring it back to your breath again and to those verses. May I live in safety. May I live in peace. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. Now call to mind someone you care about, a good friend, or someone who's helped you in your life or who inspires you. Visualize them and say the name to yourself and get a sense of their presence. And then direct the same loving-kindness phrases to them. May you live in safety. May you live in peace. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live in ease. Now call to mind someone you know who's having a difficult time right now. They might have experienced a loss or having painful feelings or in a different, difficult situation. Bring them into your awareness. Say hello to them and offer them phrases of loving kindness as well. 
may you live in safety. May you be peaceful. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live in ease and in peace. Now call to mind all the other people around the earth, many of which you do not know, but are deeply connected with. And also bring to mind all of the creatures of the earth, large and small, near and far, that you'll never know, but you're deeply connected with. And send them metta as well. May all beings everywhere live in safety. May all beings everywhere live in peace. May all beings everywhere live in a happy way. May all beings everywhere be healthy. May all beings everywhere live with ease. And when you're free or you're ready, you can open your eyes and come back to the room. Thank you all. My best wishes to all of you on your journey to sustainability. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.